In the beginning, under what kind of government did Adam and Eve live? Under what type of governments did the patriarchs and the Israelites live? Talk about the difference between liberty and tyranny and how God gives liberty while the enemy promises it but only delivers tyranny in reality. Compare the American Revolution with what the Bible teaches about liberty, tyranny, and the best type of government. Do people prefer a dictator to a benevolent form of government? Help us all to appreciate the superiority of God's government over the dictatorship of the devil, particularly in his church. That's a whole lot, and we've got just shy of two hours to cover it. So let's go ahead and begin where that description began. Man's need for government. Humanity has practiced a number of forms of government down through the centuries. You can Google this and find just lists upon lists of various forms of government that have been put in place among men. Some of the more common forms, of course, are communism, democracy like existed in the days of Athens, monarchical governments, republican governments as our own, republic as in a representative government. And then there are a number of permutations. For example, Great Britain in the days of the Revolution was not a monarchy. It was a constitutional monarchy. King George III had to go to Parliament and try to get them on board to make things happen. He didn't have the power that the kings had had in the past. There are lots of different forms of government. Some are more effective than others. Some are more moral than others, but man always is under government. Now, just what is government? Well, that sounds like a, kind of a strange question, but there are different answers. Ayn Rand, who's become a rather popular author in our day, says that government is an institution that holds the exclusive power to enforce certain rules of social conduct in a given geographical area. It sounds like that came out of a high school textbook. George Washington took a more philosophical view. He said that government is not eloquence, government is not reason, it is force. And force, like fire, is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. And that's an interesting statement. I think George Washington's words there epitomize, at least to some extent, what is America's founding idea of government. America has always harbored a deep distrust of government power, unlike any other nation-state in the modern world. The very idea of government power is stigmatized in the United States. This was written by Joseph J. Ellis in his biography of Thomas Jefferson, American Sphinx. Our Constitution was designed to protect people from government, not to protect the government from the people, as is the case in other places in the world. But regardless of what kind of government you find throughout the world, you always find government. And why is that? Because anarchy doesn't work. You can get on the internet and read all sorts of things about anarchy. There are people out there who will tell you that state government, as exists throughout the world, is undesirable. It's unnecessary. In fact, it's even harmful. There are those within the anarchist community who argue that anarchism, really what's at the heart of it is it opposes authority. Not only state authority, but authority in general. It opposes hierarchical organizations and the conduct of human relations. There are those among the anarchist community who advocate stateless societies based on non-hierarchical free associations. I don't intend to say much about it because it flies in the face of reality. It flies in the face of our own human experience. It reminds me of what someone said about liberty, that liberty doesn't work as well in practice as it does in speeches. And that's true. And it's all the more true of anarchy. We need and were created for government. Israel clamored for a king. And yes, they wanted to be like the nations around them, but there was more to it than that. 
They said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 19, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They didn't need a king to accomplish those things, but they were right. Those things need to be accomplished. We do need someone in a position of authority to arbitrate our disagreements, to coordinate our efforts, and yes, to lay down the law and enforce it so that we're not vulnerable to abuse by others. I have been asked to make some comparisons between the American Revolution and some of the subject material, so I'm going to be making frequent reference to some of the uh, revolutionary illuminaries, and I, I hope that won't be a problem and that it can be edifying. James Madison wrote that government, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If you could trust people to live right, it's true we wouldn't need government in large measure. But you can't. The Declaration of Independence listed these rights that we hear all the time during the election cycle. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But then it went on to say, and to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Governments are there to make sure that people don't abuse and use other people. We the people, says our Constitution, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, secure, ensure domestic tranquility. You know, the, you know this stuff. But it's there to make sure that people can live with one another. God has ordained government. Romans 13.4 says that government is God's minister to you for good. Regardless of what people out there may say, government is good. It is God-ordained. Let every soul, Paul said, Romans 13.1 and 2, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. For me to disobey governmental authority, and I'll tell you that my conscience applies this even to the speed limits. And I'm not quite sure on what grounds we don't apply it even to that sort of thing. But you'll stand before your master, not me. But for me to disobey governmental authority when it is not requiring me to disobey God's authority is to disobey God's authority. That's what Paul's telling us. He tells us not only that we must submit to that authority, but Peter says, honor the king. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10.20, do not curse the king even in your thought. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul wrote that when Nero was in power. If Paul could write that then, we can obey it now. If Paul could write that when a man like Nero is in power, I can obey it when Barack Obama is in power. Christians have a responsibility before God to pray for the leaders. Pray that God will accept the things they're doing that are wrong? No, but pray that they will behave in such a way that you can live peaceably. This is what Paul says. This is what God is saying. Christians need to be praying for the president, praying for Congress, praying for the high courts, not maligning them. No, not even in their hearts. That's what the Scripture is telling us. Take care of what jokes you laugh at. Take care of what jokes you tell. Take care of what emails you forward. I've seen from this very stage 
things said in jest that I'm not sure should have been said with respect to the leaders of our nation. We need to be serious about this. God takes this seriously, and we need to also. Government is God-ordained. It is a good thing in its place. And not only do we need temporal government, but we, of course, do need spiritual government, the direction and protection that only God can give. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We need someone to tell us how to live, what to do. Left to ourselves, we do no better in the spiritual realm than we do in the civil realm. Spiritual anarchy results in spiritual depravity and ultimately destruction. I don't know which one it was, Stalin or Lenin, but a number of years ago I was listening to an audio book about one of them, and then I think I was watching a video about one of them. My memory is serving me fantastic. But what I do remember is how very perverse the life of these men or this particular man had become. It's the sort of thing that you may not even find pleasant to, to talk about. And you think, how can a man become that way? How can a whole group of people become that way? Well, the reason they could become that way is because God was completely out of the picture. A pure Marxist view does not have God. Government is God. And you take God out of the picture, and the sky is the limit. The farther you get from God, the deeper you will sink into the fetid, putrid, perverted potentialities of unbridled lust. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 19 to those Christians, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. This is the nature of sin. It's the law of diminishing returns. And sin unrepented of gets worse and worse and worse. We see it in our nation. When prayer was in school, guns weren't. Not in the way they are now. Almost at the same time that members of our nation began grumbling about having under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, we were at the same time adopting homosexual marriage. As we retreat from God, we descend into the abyss of sin. Will Durant's insightful words are being fulfilled before our very eyes. He wrote, In the end, a society and its religion tend to fall together like body and soul in a harmonious death. We are seeing it in America. People are tired of Christianity. That's how I phrase it. You can phrase it however you will. Our nation in general has grown weary of what they think Christianity is. It's antiquated. It's old-fashioned. Paganism is on the rise. I was teaching those junior high students last year. I had three or four of them tell me that they know someone in their age group who believes in the Greek gods. I was talking with the man who used to be among us. This has been, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago now. He used to be among us. He was baptized for the remission of his sins. He told me, well, I know there's something out there, but maybe it's the Greek gods, maybe it's something else. This sort of stuff that you used to be confined to mythology and was the sort of stuff that was laughed at, scoffed at, criticized. We may well see the day where this stuff is taken very seriously. And in fact, I'm certain that it is being taken seriously in some circles even now. We need spiritual government. And God has always ensured that we have it. I was asked to talk about the kind of government under which Adam and Eve lived, uh, the patriarchs and the Israelites. Let's talk a little bit about that. A brief history of the spiritual government that God has instituted among men. Adam and Eve's pre-fall relationship with God, their government was of course unique in the experience of man. They communed with God without fear. 
without any sense of past or present guilt, without any anxiety or discomfort with respect to his oversight in their lives. Just go down the street or down the road, and as soon as you see, you know, you know before you see him that there is a patrol officer or that there is a police officer on the side of the road. Before you ever see him, how do you know? Everyone starts slowing down. Everyone starts behaving in a way that they would not behave if he weren't there. Adam and Eve didn't have that kind of anxiety when God was among them. They were sinless. They felt free to commune with Him. There was no embarrassment. There was no fear. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. He walked among them in the cool of the day, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This may have been something He did regularly, making regular visits among them, perhaps for instruction, perhaps to give them occasion to worship. I speculate there. I don't know. But almost certainly, certainly, these were, doubt, these were visits they would have received with joy. It was a relationship between government and the governed that will only be realized again in future days. But even in that familiar communion, there was a hierarchy. God was God. Man was man. And that one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy gave law. You shall not eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He may have given some other commands, but we can point to that one for sure. It's important to notice that even in a perfect environment, there is law. And furthermore, that that law did not rob Adam and Eve of their freedom. What did God say? Of every tree of the garden you may what? It wasn't just eat. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. You're free to eat whatever you want. There's just this one thing. But you can do whatever you want elsewhere. And furthermore, God made them so that they were free to choose what they would do. There was freedom, even when there was law. Law and liberty existed simultaneously. And to, ex- to appreciate the extent of the liberty God was giving them, just consider with me here. Just how many types of trees there were in the garden, I don't know. But I would think it's almost certain that there was a humongous variety. The pre-flood world may have been much more uniform in its climate than our world today is. You may have had a circumstance where most trees, most plants could grow in most places. There probably were species throughout the world that don't even exist today. Imagine what that meant when God said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Taking out modern day cultivars and hybrids, just just contemplate it. Adam and Eve, you can eat apples, almonds, apricots, bananas, Brazil nuts, cashews, cherries, chestnuts, cocoa, coconuts, fig, hazelnuts, hickory, bear with me here, kumquat, cherries, chestnut, pawpaw, papaya, mango, orange, peach, pear, persimmon, pistachio, plum, pomegranate, starfruit, walnut, not to mention all the fruits and the bushes and the plants and the vines and the tree of life. The opportunities that God freely offered them far outweighed the limitations. Law did not remove liberty, although it may have allowed them to appreciate it. God's commandments are not burdensome. God wasn't asking too much. He wasn't even asking much. God's government was benevolent. It was kind. It was reasonable. It was wonderful. Wonder what type of government did the patriarchs and the Israelites live? And this, of course, takes us after the fall. I'm going to deviate for just a moment, and I hope I don't stir the pot too much here. 
When we ask the question, what kind of government did the patriarchs live under, just exactly what are we asking? Who are, for example, the patriarchs? <coughs> Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All right, true enough. The Bible does refer to Abraham as a patriarch. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, the Hebrew writer says, Consider how great this man was, that is Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch David, or pardon me, patriarch Abraham, gave a tenth of the spoils. The twelve sons of Jacob are twice by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 called patriarchs. In Acts 7, verse 8, it says Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. In Acts 7, 9, it speaks of the patriarchs becoming envious. Abraham's called a patriarch. The twelve sons of Jacob are called patriarchs. That all fits within what we normally think of as the patriarchs. But there's only one other person in the entire Bible called a patriarch. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Peter said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. David's not back there before the law. He's well in to the days of the law. Now, I don't know how important that is for us to grasp, but I think it's maybe worth noting that how the Bible uses the word patriarch is a little different than how we have typically tended to use it. Now, when we ask what kind of government the patriarchs were under, I think normally we're probably thinking about this thing we call the patriarchal age, the patriarchal dispensation. Most of us have been exposed to that, taught that. I did not do an exhaustive search by any stretch of the imagination, but I did find it interesting that when I typed in patriarchal age on Google, the only things I came up, and I, you know, I may have only gone through the first page, but almost everything that I found pertained to historical discussions about whether or not the chronologies and the descriptions about Abraham and so forth were really true, whether or not they really lined up with history. The only thing, religion speaking, that I found with respect to the patriarchal dispensation or patriarchal age was published by a group that calls itself the Church of Christ. No other group that I found publishes that. And that doesn't prove anything, although it's interesting. What is the patriarchal age as we have traditionally viewed it? Well, if I'm not mistaken, it's a period of time during which God, maybe there was no written law perhaps, He was working through the fathers. It was a family religion where the father would serve as high priest or a priest for the family where he would receive the word from God and pass it on to his family. One source said this age is recorded from Genesis 1 to Exodus 20 or from creation to the giving of the law of Moses. Sometimes it's been taken well. It goes to the law of Moses for the Jew, but for the Gentile it goes all the way up to the cross or all the way up to Cornelius' time. And you had the patriarchal dispensation and the mosaic dispensation running concurrently with each other. I myself have entertained and maybe even taught those ideas. What's our evidence for viewing it this way? Well, we see Job in Job chapter 1. He's making sacrifices for his family. We see Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all making sacrifices. And perhaps based on this information, particularly Job, we've said, well, this is how it worked. What Job was doing was typical. It was normative for this period of time. I have to admit, I'm not sure. Well, I'll back up. Looking at more of the evidence, I think we're missing some things here. Not that that's wrong, but it's incomplete. Yes, we see Abraham offering sacrifices. We see Job offering sacrifices, and they probably were around, around about the same time. Job had seven sons and three daughters, lost them all, 
and lived long enough to have ten more children and see at least his great-grandchildren. The Septuagint said he lived to be 240 years old. Terah, Abraham's father, lived to be 205. Abraham lived to be 175. So yeah, Job and Abraham may have been contemporaries. And yes, we see both of them offering sacrifices. Although we're not told that Abraham did it for his family. But notice something else about what was going on in the spiritual service that Abraham and Job were offering God. Both Abraham and Job were called to intercede with God for others. When Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz came to see their folly and were told by God, you have spoken wrongly about me, and they wanted forgiveness, they couldn't just go make a sacrifice and get that forgiveness from God. What were they told to do? Take it to Job. Job will pray for you, and I will accept him. Abraham did the same thing. Abimelech took Sarah into his harem, unwittingly found out that she was in fact the wife of Abraham. God says to him, I know you did it in the integrity of your heart. I have spared you, but have Abraham pray for you, for he is a prophet. Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Why is it that Abraham and Job are praying for other people? Why is it that other people are having to go through these two men to find forgiveness with God? In the case of Abraham, it looks like it may have been because he was a prophet. If that's the case, is the same true for Job? I don't know. I don't know that we have enough information here to ultimately nail down just exactly how things worked. We may be getting a peek, but not a full picture. Furthermore, when we look in the life of Abraham in Genesis 14, when he goes and saves Lot and he comes back with all that spoil... He goes and he meets up with who? Melchizedek. And what's Melchizedek? Priest. Well, he's a pagan priest. No, he's not. He's priest of the Most High God. Where does that fit in our traditional view of the patriarchal dispensation? I don't know how to make that line up with that in any way, shape, or form. Now, don't bring this up just to criticize. I just think it's worth considering. Moses married Zipporah. Zipporah was the wife of Jethro, who was priest. Of Midian. We're told this over in Exodus uh, chapter 2, 3, and 18. Now, granted, Jethro may not have been, at least initially, a priest of God. There is evidence in Exodus 18, 11 that his understanding of God as the one true and living God may have been something that came later, so I don't want to point too much to that. But one thing that really shakes up the view of what the patriarch's life was like. Before the law is Exodus chapter 19. If you want to turn there with me, I just want to read a couple of verses. This is just before the giving of the law at Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. <coughs> Exodus 19, 21 and 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the who? The priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Unless I am missing something, there is no mention of the Aaronic priesthood until chapter 28. Here is a people who have not yet received the Mosaic law, and they have priests among them. And these are not pagan priests, they are priests who come before Jehovah. Fascinating. Just what was life like 
prior, prior to the law. Well, we're getting us some glimpses. I don't know that we have the full picture, but there were priests. Yes, there was a prophet like Abraham, maybe Job, who served a similar role at times. But there were priests functioning in some capacity. What the terms for their service were, how they became that, I cannot say. But God provided, regardless of how we look at it, He provided direction, and every need was met. One other thing I may mention about this time before the giving of the law, it's evident that there were practices and laws in place already before they were ever codified or reiterated in the law. Not just this priesthood thing I'm discussing. We know that murder was wrong before it was said, you shall not murder. What, was God, what did God tell Noah? Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Murder is wrong before the law. Honoring your father was expected before the law. When Ham went in and saw his father naked, he didn't handle it right. When Japheth and Shem handled it, what did they do? They walked backwards. We're not going to look at the nakedness of our father. We're going to honor our father. That was something that existed before the law. There were clean and unclean animals even before the law. Moses took two of one, seven of the other. There was tithing, Abraham and Melchizedek. Adultery was wrong. That was what Abimelech was concerned about. There were prescribed procedures for sanctification and consecration. Job chapter 1 verse 5, what we didn't hit is that when Job did make those sacrifices for his children, he would send them, it says, and sanctify them. How did he do that? Exodus 19, 10 and 11, God told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. There were processes in place before the law that the law may have simply codified or reiterated. Much of what was in the law may not have been new, or some at least may, was not new. God has never left humanity without spiritual governance, without leadership and law. There's been a progression of revelation. Some have said that under this patriarchal time, a little broader than we've thought, there was starlight, and then with the law came moonlight with John the Baptist. There was twilight with Christ. There is sunlight. There's been a progression of revelation, an increasing amount of light, but there's always been light. God has never left man without revelation, for where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Proverbs 29 18. We still haven't touched on the Israelites after the law, though. Let's talk just a little bit about that before we move on. This is an era and system with which we are quite familiar. We do know that when God gave the nation of Israel the law, He was giving them an immense blessing. He was giving them an advantage over their Gentile contemporaries. Remember what Romans 3 says. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, what? What's the next thing? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. There was an advantage the Jew had that the Gentile did not have when he received the law. Well, what was that advantage? Well, he knew what sin was on a more extensive level. Romans 7, 7 says, On the contrary, I would not have known sin, Paul said, except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. I could have gone my whole life greedily desiring, doing something that displeases God. I never would have known it unless the law told me. That's a good thing. The law not only revealed sin, but it revealed sin in all its ugliness. Romans chapter 7, verse 13 says, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Not only did the Jews see that certain things were wrong, but he saw how dastardly and disgusting these things were if he was paying attention. The law prepared the Jew for the coming of the Christ. The Jew had a leg up in being prepared for Jesus' arrival if he had a heart to receive it. 
The law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, Paul said, Galatians 3, 24. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus comes along, when John the Baptist comes along, when the 70, when the apostles, and they say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they don't say, now, I know you've never heard about this kingdom, let me explain to you what we mean by that. They never do that. They didn't have to. The Jew knew a kingdom was coming. This was very familiar territory. The same may not have been true for a Gentile. The Jews even had a timetable in Daniel 9 for when the king would come. The Jew had a tremendous advantage, but he was at a disadvantage because he was in the flesh, just like all the other people of his day. Because of the weakness of the flesh, there was frustration under the law. Romans 7.5, Paul says, When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Sinful passions were aroused by the law. He says in chapter 7, verse 8, Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. That's the natural relationship between law and flesh. As soon as you say you can't do a thing, the flesh wants to do it. We've probably seen it with children, and we see it in our own hearts and lives. There's an antagonistic relationship there. And it was difficult for a faithful Jew Paul describes his own experience with it in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. For what I am doing, we heard these verses before, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. He says, I see that God's law is good. With my mind, I appreciate it. But with the flesh, I find myself continually going against what my mind knows is right to do. Romans 7:19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. These are the words of a man who has continually fought and continually failed. This is what it was like for the Jew under the law. The law was, according to Peter, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Acts 15, verse 10. It was a benefit to the Jew, but it was looking to a new and better covenant established on better promises, which sets the stage nicely for the next phase of our study. That new and better covenant brought God's people a better promise that could never be fully realized under the law. Promise of liberty. And here is where we'll begin to draw some more parallels between the liberty in Christ and the liberty our nation's founders fought for. It's been ten more more years ago I went to Barnes & Noble, I think it was, and I bought a group of CDs called something like Greatest Speeches of the 20th Century. I enjoy listening to that sort of thing. Not all of it, but some of it. And of all the speeches on that compendium, and of all the speeches in the, in the political world that I've heard in my life, by far the best is one that was given on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Who gave that speech? Martin Luther King Jr. Can I get a show of hands of how many of you saw that live on television when it was happening? Oh, I thought we'd have some. There's one? Okay, thank you. Okay. I didn't know it had been broadcast on networks, on major networks, but it was. Martin Luther King Jr. was a masterful speechwriter. He was a wordsmith of the highest order. He was a spellbinding orator. I have heard the story 
that John F. Kennedy, who was no slouch himself in oratory, said as he was listening to Martin Luther King deliver that speech, something along the lines, he's good. He was a very spellbinding presenter of words. And in that speech, and I hope you'll bear with me in that, he began with a very memorable metaphor to establish his point. He said that the architects of our republic, when they composed the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that what they had done in essence was sign a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. And that that promissory note promised all men, yes, black men as well as white men, he said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But he said up until that time, America, America had defaulted on that note. That America had given her citizens of color a bad check, a check that had come back marked insufficient funds. And he said, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. He said, we've come to cash a check. He spoke in that speech of freedom at length about how we should let freedom ring throughout the whole country. Soaring oratory. And he closed the speech with these words. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I'm not here to get us all nationalistic, but I was given the freedom to make some comparisons. Our nation was founded on the premise, in word at least, that all men are free and of a right ought to be. That they are, in fact, endowed with their, by their Creator with that thing called liberty. And it bears inquiry, if we're going to make comparisons here, just what did liberty mean to the founders of the United States? What did liberty mean in 1776? Well, it didn't mean the same thing for all of them. George Washington, who was, as Joseph J. Ellis said, the foundingest father of them all, did not view liberty in the same way as Thomas Jefferson. George Washington was a pragmatist to the core. He was a man who liked to have control. He may have been the only founder who actually died with some money. He was in land, but he still had some wealth. And what he saw under the tyranny of Great Britain was that he did not have economic independence. The small Virginia planters would sell their crops to local individuals and make their money that way. But the large Virginia planters, like Washington, would, tell, would send them overseas to Britain where they would then be taken into a mercantile house and sold supposedly at a much higher price. The idea was to make more money. They would then, after accumulating that money, buy certain things that the person over in the colonies had requested for and send those items and the profit back. Sounds like a great system, right? George Washington found that that system was putting him in debt. He was going broke working through the mercantile houses. He did not want to be in bondage in the sense of debt. Proverbs 22, verse 7. Washington did not share the founders' fears of strong centralized power. He had been in the military. He had seen that centralized power works when you've got someone who's doing it right. And he had no problem with there being a strong, centralized federal government. He thought it was necessary. He was very frustrated during the war when we didn't have it. 
He did not share Jefferson's grandiose visions of equality among men. After he retired from leading the Continental Army, he accepted membership into what was called the Society of the Cincinnati. It was a society of individuals who had been among the officers in the war. And it was very elitist. In fact, the membership was built so that your membership would pass on to the eldest son. You can imagine how this struck Americans who were trying to get away from all that. But Washington was fine with that. Washington viewed himself as better than other men. I hate to be shooting holes in our, our, our beautiful view of this, but he viewed himself as better than other men. He had no qualms with taking a high position and letting others be lower. He saw that the American Revolution had destroyed monarchy and British imperial rule, but he did not believe that it was a social revolution that destroyed the world of privilege, rank, and deference. So what did liberty mean? Well, despite the varying views, there were some things they could have agreed upon. Declaration of Independence, and I won't be hitting this much longer, said at the end of the second paragraph that the history of the present King of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. How many of you have read the Declaration of Independence? Okay. I don't know that I've read it cover to cover either. It gets a little laborious. There are parts of it which are very magnificent and exciting to read, and then there's the meat of it, which is 26 plus grievances that the colonists had where they said King George had mistreated them. To the founders, King George was an abusive, dismissive monarch. He did not care for their needs, and he was harmful to their welfare. He was a self-serving tyrant, and so liberty for all of them was in its barest and most essential (coughs) sense to be found in getting out from under his heavy hand. To get out from under him, to be free from his influence and authority, and free to pursue what they wanted to do without the limits of unreasonable government but rather the limits of a reasonable law legislated by a benevolent government. Not so unlike liberty in Christ. Is there such a thing as spiritual tyranny? What do you mean, John? Well, there absolutely is. It is the tyranny of the tempter, the despotism of the devil, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this world, or the God of this age. In 1 John 5.19, John tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. If you are not a part of the kingdom of God's dear Son this morning, you are in the world, and you are, according to Scripture, under Satan's sway. And he is not a benevolent dictator. He is self-serving in every way. He is interested only in your harm. What do you mean, John? Note in Scripture how Satan deals with people. In Job chapter 1, Satan is speaking with God. And what does Job say, or what does Satan, pardon me, say about Job? 
He says he's only serving you, God, because you're making it good for him. He is the accuser of our brethren, Revelation chapter 12 says. He lies about Job, and then once given permission, he seeks out by every means he can possibly assert to prompt Job to curse God and die. Satan would have ruined Job physically and spiritually, temporally and eternally, if he could have. He is malevolent to the core. I may, it may be, probably is true, there is nothing good in Satan. You know, most people we meet, as bad as they are, there's generally something good. Most people are a mixture. Satan is not a mixture. He hates you, he hates God, he wants to see you suffer with him. Look at the demons over whom he rules. Matthew chapter 9 verse 34 calls him the ruler of the demons. In Luke chapter 8 we see a man who's possessed of so many demons that they call themselves legion. What is this man doing? He's running around naked such that he's not protected from the elements. He's running among the tombs that according to the law of Moses would defile him. He's out in the mountains day and night cutting himself with stones, crying out, the demons are making him hurt himself. In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, the man comes to Jesus who has this boy who's possessed of his demon, and he tells Jesus, the demon throws this boy into the fire <coughs> and into the water to what? Destroy him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn over there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, beginning in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. That's an interesting statement. We all know about this thorn in the flesh. It may have been something with his eyesight. He talks to the Galatians about how they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him. Let's see with what large letters I write to you and all that. But notice where he says this thorn in the flesh comes from. What is its cause? It's a messenger of Satan. The word for messenger, anybody want to take a guess what that word is actually? It's the word for angel. It may be that what Paul is telling us is that just as, just as God allowed Satan to work perhaps through his ministers to harm Job, so also, and ultimately for his good, so also God was allowing one of Satan's angels to bring this pain on Paul for Paul's good. But who was the one administering the pain? This angel, this messenger. Why would he do that? Because Satan wants to hurt you. Satan wants you to suffer. He has lost everything. God gives no aid to angels. He's going to hell. He's on a one-way ticket to hellfire. And his only intention is to take you there with him. If you are of age today, and this will be more relevant tomorrow, but if you are of age today and outside of Christ, you are living under the tyranny of this one who wants nothing but to hurt you. Well, it doesn't feel like tyranny, John. I feel quite free. It's you who are under tyranny. You're the one serving this great cosmic killjoy who saps your life of all the fun and experiences you could be having. 
In June of 2003, there was an article put out by Reuters Press. It was talking about the thousands that were gathering at Stonehenge, I think maybe for the summer solstice. Paganism's been on the rise in the UK since something like the 1950s. And in this article, one of these pagans was interviewed, and the individual said this, Traditional religions have so many prohibitions. Thou shalt not do this or that. Paganism has a message of liberation. I worked with a man in college. We delivered food for multiple restaurants. And once in a while we'd have some downtime in between deliveries. His name was Keith. Nice guy. Keith believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Keith believed that he ought to do something about that and make himself a servant of the Lord. But Keith wouldn't do it. And he was very honest why. He said, I know I ought to, but if I do that, I've got to give up the promiscuous life he was living. I've got to give up the marijuana. And he didn't want to do it. God was nothing to him at that moment except one who was going to steal his freedom. Is there freedom outside of Christ? Absolutely. In Psalm 2, when it's describing those who war against Jesus, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. All they want to do is restrict us. Let us take these manacles of oppression that God would latch on us and let's get rid of them. Let's be free. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There is freedom outside of Christ. But it's not real freedom. It's the worst kind of bondage. You are not really free until you start caring about the things that God cares about. Look at David. David is trying to get this ark, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He puts it on the cart. He doesn't do God's will. Trouble happens. He comes back a second time. This time tells the Levite, the priest, we didn't do it the right way last time. You get the Ark now. You bring it. And they go a little ways. They offer a sacrifice. And later, when that Ark is coming into Jerusalem, what is David doing? He's dancing. He's rejoicing. Why? Because he's walking in the peace and happiness of obedience. He's free. Real spiritual freedom is found in only one place in this day. And in one person, Jesus Christ. And I want to dwell on another point for just a little while longer. We need to let people know that God loves freedom. The word liberty appears 26 times in my New King James Bible, and I'm sure free and freedom a whole bunch more. I didn't bother to count. God loves freedom. When He made Adam and Eve, He gave them the free will to do as they would, even when it was not what they ought. And He does the same thing for you and me. Every 50 years, according to Leviticus 25, under the law of Moses, a trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement, sounding the year of what? Year of Jubilee. It's interesting that it was sounded on the Day of Atonement. On the day that sin was being atoned for was the day that liberty was proclaimed. That's the very language in Leviticus 25, verse 10. Proclaim liberty. 
God sent Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the Jubilee. Isaiah 61 verse 1, in prophetic words, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, the very same words of Leviticus 25.10, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. God loves liberty. If you follow Jesus today, you do so of your own free will. Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. God doesn't make you do anything. He gives you the freedom to choose, and He shows you where you can find still greater freedom. It's in Christ Jesus. And let us never cease to emphasize that fact. Freedom is not found, strictly speaking, in Bible study. Freedom is not found in going to church. Freedom is not found in... Uh, Making sure I keep all, I'll cross all my T's and dot my I's so that I'm more moral than my neighbor. Though some of those things will be a part of the package, but freedom is ultimately found in nothing I have done, but in Christ Jesus. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which, by which Christ has made us free. Galatians 5.1 John 8.36 Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 1.4, it is Jesus who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Romans 8.2, for it is the law, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I don't believe it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's the law of the spirit of life and it's the law of sin and death. And that first law, the spirit of life, has set me free from the law of sin and death in Christ Jesus. There's the location. Just like the high priest had to go to that mercy seat, that little rectangle to find atonement for himself, for his family, and for the people, so also atonement and freedom is found in one place. Jesus Christ. Christ gives freedom. And He tells us how He does it. He does it by way of truth. Our fifth child is named Liberty Truth. I think that whole name was Amber's idea. She comes up with good ones. It may have been when I first told Rick what her name was or sometime thereafter, he made the statement, that's a powerful name. I don't know that I'd ever thought of it in those terms. But he was right. Jesus said in John 8.32, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We'll explore that more after the break.